So, Jay, Rogue and Gambit finally got hitched. Hell yeah, they did. Even got their own ongoing series out of it. Did they get to go on a honeymoon or anything? I know the wedding was pretty much spur of the moment. That's what the ongoing series is about. Gambit called in a few favors and set them up with a sweet honeymoon in space. Oh, awesome. It's about time those two got a break from all the superhero drama. Uh, Miles? They're X-Men. Exactly. They deserve a vacation. No, what on earth makes you think they can take a vacation without getting into superhero drama? Oh, point. What was it this time? Brood? Skrulls? Well, they got a call mid-honeymoon from Kitty, telling them first that they needed to put on pants, and then that they needed to steal and guard an artifact that the Shi'ar Imperial Guard had. And then Deadpool got involved, and Deathbird turned up, and then it turned out to be this massive political thing. So, what was the artifact? Well, at first they thought it was a crystal. Like the Emkron crystal? No, it turned out the crystal was actually just the carrying case, and the real prize was the egg inside. Okay. Except then that hatch. Into a dinosaur? Into Professor X and Lalandra's daughter. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 244 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to the Big Easy. But uh, first, uh, Jay, I heard you had some news. I do. I learned to knit socks, and I'm extremely excited about this. Um, I know I can do two different types of heels. I'm learning a third. I mean, that's pretty awesome, but I heard you had some slightly more podcast-relevant news. Right, so actually this news technically broke over Emerald City Week, but I kept on forgetting to bring it up on the podcast. I am co-writing a uh, Thor novel with Serial Box. How freaking cool is that? One of my favorite people writing one of my favorite characters? Like, what? I cannot give you any kind of details except for to tell you that the, the rest of the, the creative team's been announced and they're all phenomenal, um, and I have it on good authority that it is going to be rad as hell. And Serial Box, so their deal is that they do serialized fiction, right? Well, serialized audio fiction specifically. Oh, very cool. I'm excited about that. Also, you get to make a thing that I just get to, like, check out as a fan rather than as a collaborator. I mean, collaborating is awesome, but it is a lot less work just to be a fan and passively consume. I, I mean, I, I do write a lot of stuff. It's true, it's true, and I enjoy it every time, except when I don't realize it's there. And then you tell me, and that's great. I mean, sometimes. Anyway, all of that aside, as we briefly mentioned, we are heading back to New Orleans today. Do you remember the last time we were in the X-Men version of New Orleans, Jay? I do. There were definitely brood there. Yes, we covered that in episode 194, covering the Ghost Rider X-Men crossover, Brood Trouble in the Big Easy, one of the 90s-est and most enjoyable stories ever. Uh, and here we have another very, very 90s story, although I don't know, this one feels a little more timeless than that one, because while it's got very, very 90s visuals, this is a story of Gambit and the Thieves Guild, which tend to be very sort of futile. It doesn't really have a flaming ghost motorcycle driving on its own through a church to go crash into an evil alien, so I guess there's that. A church window does get smashed, though, and a church, uh, a big saint statue blows up, so, you know, they're trying. Well, speaking of the previous trip to New Orleans and the flaming motorcycle crashing into an alien, let's do a brief recap of Brood Trouble in the Big Easy, because the New Orleans introduced in that story is going to be the setting and almost a character in this one. Alright, so again, as covered in episode 194, mysterious, sexy, and occasionally troubling but always phonetically accented Cajun mutant thief Gambit joined the X-Men and quickly got super mutually flirty with fellow southern X-Man Rogue, possessed of her own slightly different phonetic accent. But then Gambit's ex-wife, not ex-wife, just like EX-wife, Belladonna Boudreaux showed up out of nowhere, bringing with her a truly questionable accent of her own and a whole lot of exposition. Some time ago, the two warring guilds of New Orleans, the Thieves Guild, that's thieves, but yeah, pronounced always Thieves, and the Assassins had decided it would be a great idea to marry off a couple of their kids, in this case, Gambit and Belladonna. That was cool, though, because Gambit and Belladonna had previously been forbidden childhood sweethearts anyway, so no big. 
Less cool was Belladonna's brother Julian, who promptly challenged Gambit to a duel. Gambit killed him and had to leave New Orleans on his and Belladonna's wedding night. And according to X-Men 92, a series which if you haven't read, you really, really should, the note that Gambit left for Belladonna simply said, It not you, it Gambit. I fully accept that as canon. Gambit and the X-Men helped Belladonna fight off an attempted alien takeover of New Orleans, but Belladonna, despite having new and ill-defined powers, died in the process. However, during this adventure, we learned quite a lot, specifically... The X-Men's response to getting pulled over by a cop in New Orleans is to blow up the police car and then run away. Belladonna considered Mr. Bootymon an appropriate epithet for a brood-possessed ghost rider. Thieves love fancy coats and mullets. Assassins love gimp suits with neon accents. And a mysterious, shadowy, clawed assassin does not love Gambit, but does love murdering lots of members of the Thieves' Guild. Uh, with all of that in mind, and despite the setbacks incurred therein, Rogue and Gambit have actually been doing pretty well as a couple. And Gambit's been sort of coming into his own and out of his uh, sleaziest early, early eras. This miniseries reminded me of why I used to think Gambit was cool. It was brief, but it was there. Yeah, I mean, I think this miniseries kind of uh, shows us many of the traits that Gambit embodies. The miniseries is ridiculous, makes no sense, but nonetheless is incredibly engaging and you want to spend more time there. Also, it was 1993 and he brooded a lot and had, like, floppy hair and a trench coat. What more do you need? Yeah, pretty much. Well, one thing you might need if you were reading comics in 1993 is a miniseries that had foil-embossed cardstock covers. And you actually Ooh. had three for which to choose. You had the Gambit miniseries we're covering today. You also had Deadpool the Circle Chase and Sabretooth Death Hunt. Those all came out in 93 around the X-Men 30th anniversary event. I'm really annoyed that they called it Deadpool the Circle Chase and not Deadpool the Circle Jerk because I feel like, well, I guess that was kind of before Deadpool crystallized into the, the variety of humor that he, he tends to air into today. Yeah, yeah, Deadpool's sense of humor was a little more mean-spirited and less uh, sexually goofy back then. Sexually goofy. The Deadpool story. <laughs> now, Gambit it has been reprinted, which is to say this miniseries that is called Gambit has been reprinted with the Rogue miniseries that came out about a year later. Because along with Brood Trouble and the Big Easy, Gambit and Rogue make up sort of the New Orleans Warring Guild Belladonna trilogy. Um, and also both of those series are by the same writer, Howard Mackey. Who did the Ghost Rider chapters of Brood Trouble and the Big Easy. Mackey does... A very, very good job, I think, of lending Gambit a, a degree of sort of operatic drama while very, very much leaning into Claremontian idioms and tone. Oh, yeah, it is delightfully overwrought. Does that mean that this version of New Orleans has a great deal of overwrought iron making up its architecture? Seems likely. Yeah. As for when this takes place, well, like so many things we've been covering, it's just sort of in the middle of Fatal Attractions. It's sometime after Liana's funeral, but before Logan went off and quit the team, and presumably before Logan got his medal ripped out, because when he shows up in this series, he seems like he's doing pretty okay. I mean, he could be faking it. I feel like a lot of miniseries got written before Fatal Attractions came out and were slotted at semi-random. You may know this series through one of its adaptations, because the Gambit miniseries was adapted simultaneously into an episode of X-Men, the animated series called Externally Yours. That episode came out the same month that issue one of this series did, which always blows me away because the cartoon was just so freaking current with the comics that were going on at the time. I don't know how they managed that. I mean, you certainly see a number of uh, plot point divergences, uh, specifically the Phalanx Covenant and the Warlock story loosely based off of it, don't have much to do with each other. But still, that degree of coordination is pretty damn cool. That does speak to the, po the possibility, and I think probability, that several of those miniseries and storylines were developed significantly before they were published and not really considered as far as where they'd fit into the ongoing continuity. Well, meanwhile, let's throw our wine glasses onto the ground and say, enough context, have at you, and dive right into Gambit number one, Tithing. Do, do we have to? That seems like a pain to clean up. I don't know, Dracula does it, and we like Dracula on this podcast. 
Miles, Dracula can just hypnotize people into mopping for him. That does seem really convenient. But, uh, anyway, who wrote this story? So this is, as I mentioned, written by Howard Mackey, it's penciled by Lee Weeks, inked by Klaus Janssen, and colored by Steve Buccoletto. Um, that's going to be the case throughout the series, although Jason Gorder will assist with inking on number four. Now, we open the series with the local myth of the Tithe Collector. This is a shadowy figure who wanders through the streets of New Orleans in a trench coat being vaguely menacing once every seven years, and will probably come get you if you're not good, or at least if you're not good and you're a thief and or an assassin. I think that kids who are the ones we are told get this as a cautionary tale are probably pretty much safe most of the time. But nonetheless, the, as we mentioned, incredibly overwrought but also really enjoyable opening narration ends with, Remember your mama's words and live. Uh, my mama definitely did not warn me about the tithe collector. Well, she probably should have. But I really love the way this starts. The intro narration and Lee Week's sort of line-heavy but delicate art, it really makes everything seem kind of mythic, like these rituals and traditions of the New Orleans guilds are just so imposing. Is, is it because of the occasional calligraphy and the fake uh, ripped parchment captions? It absolutely is, yes. I know that's sort of a cheap trick, but it is a cheap trick that totally works on me. Maybe because I read this miniseries at exactly the right age. Now, the Tithe Collector's actual deal is this. He works for an external. This is an external named Cantor, who's going to show up later in this series, who I don't think we've met yet in the pages of X-Men. And he collects a substantial tithe from the thieves and the assassins. It's implied most of what they earn. Um, in exchange for this, the thieves get long life via tripartite elixir, and the assassins get superpowers via who the hell even knows what. Right. Now, you may remember the shadowy, clawed assassin we mentioned in our previously on section. He showed up in Brood Trouble in the Big Easy. And that was actually Julian Boudreau, the brother of Belladonna, whom Gambit believed himself to have killed on his own wedding night. Uh, Gambit's not Julian's. Uh, Julian is, in fact, alive for some value of the term, but he is hell-bent on messing with the system, on getting, specifically getting the elixir of long life that belongs to the thieves, but also just wiping out the thieves and having the assassins take over entirely. Meanwhile, in New York, Henri Lebeau, who is a thief, and his impressive mustache break into the X-Mansion to have a word with his adoptive brother, Remy. The first time I read this for a second, I thought it was Puck from Alpha Flight, because you don't really get a frame of reference for how tall he is in his first few panels. And he's bald, he's stocky, he's got an awesome mustache, and I want to hang out with him, which makes me think, hey, Puck. He could also be like any given Howlin' Commando. I mean, just a couple Howling Commandos. There are a number of mustaches on that team, though. However, no sooner have Henri and his mustache um, come in, greeted Remy, and let him know that the tithe is coming in the whole guild, including you know the currently exiled Remy, have to be there, then poor Henri and his mustache are assassinated by assassins. I really like to think, although we don't see any textual evidence of this, that slightly off-panel was a little mustache that itself had, like, a gimp suit and some neon ha accents and was working for the assassins, and the mustache killed Henri's mustache while the assassins killed the rest of Henri. So, we talked about, you know, we, we, we talked about the black gimp suits with the neon highlights, but in this series, they're just straight-up glow orange. Yeah, that's true. The uh, cartoon and Brood Trouble the Big Easy had the assassins mostly wearing, like, sort of black rubber with neon green and neon pink. And this time, it's more red and orange, which honestly makes a lot more sense for the assassins. But I just imprinted so hard on the previous green and pink and black look that I just keep overwriting everything I see with that. I don't know. Neither of those looks is particularly stealthy, but we are talking about a paradigm in which Gambit puts on big metal boots and neon clothes to go thieving, or thieving. So I mean, we're, we're also talking about a New Orleans that has a whole lot of underground tunnels where almost the entire plot ha happens. Even though the actual New Orleans, if you even bury people below ground, their coffins will float away. Like, none of this makes sense, and we just go with it. This is what New Orleans is like in the Marvel Universe. It's got its own set of rules, and they are rad. Don't build at sea level, kids. You get a whole other set of problems. Yeah, basically, whatever happens in stories that Gambit is in, like, probably don't do any of those things. Yeah, no. Um, so, Gambit learns 
via chasing the assassins down, not only that Julian is alive, but that Belladonna is actually alive as well. And that, that's his wife. And he's going to go to New Orleans to find her. And Rogue decides that she's going to come along because things are going really well with her and Gambit. And she's not quite sure how she fits in his life. And this is obviously a really big deal for him. And well, Wolverine gave her some advice that she's taking to heart. Don't want to wait until conditions are perfect. Because with the likes of us, they never are. And that's why you steal someone else's cancelled wedding. That brings us to Gambit number two, Honor Amongst Thieves. Hey, wait, should that be among or amongst? What do you think, Jay? Just want you to follow your heart. Legit. Anyway, Gambit does indeed make it to New Orleans and sneaks into the Assassin's Mansion to find, indeed, Belladonna, his wife. But she's comatose, and she's also naked, like barely covered by a rumpled sheet, which seems kind of weird if her family's been taking care of her. Yeah, uh, she's she's actually, um, it's part of her condition. She has the nudes. It's a very, very serious state. Oh, man. Terminal nudity. Or at least critical nudity. Is terminal nudity where you have to, like, type in the commands kind of DOS style? I mean, I have spent a fair bit of time not fully dressed typing on the command line, so uh, maybe... The Romantic Life of System Administrators. All right. Anyway, as Gambit uh, replaces the rumpled sheet covering Belladonna with his trench coat that he just sort of drapes over her, Gambit is confronted by Belladonna's dad, Marius, the head of the Assassin's Guild, and a bunch of other assassins, too. And uh, Marius does what people apparently do when they see Gambit these days and immediately challenges him to a duel. Two of my children you have taken from me, so I will have the pleasure of taking your life in a duel of honor, sir. Wait, why doesn't he have a really intense phonetic Cajun accent? Uh, I think because he's more aristocratic than he is New Orleans-y. But his kids do. Or one of his kids does. Does Julian have one? Uh, Julian has a heavy, heavy New Orleans accent. It could be, like, one of those recessive genes or one that, like, skips a generation. Uh. Maybe Marius' dad had, like, an extra strong New Orleans accent. But, like, not a real New Orleans accent, a comic book New Orleans accent, which is a specific thing. I guarantee. Anyway, the fight's going really badly for Gambit because he's super outnumbered, but Rogue bursts in to save him. And, you know, Miles, you, you got some dialogue here. Do, do you want to do both? I know you really love doing both those voices. Rogue, ma chérie, I asked you to stay out of this. Asking ain't getting, Remy. And, and so they do what they, I guess, came to do, which is to kidnap a naked comatose woman. Hooray! As they leave with Belladonna, still just sort of with a coat draped over her nude form, Marius begs Gambit to find the thieves' elixir of life. I mean, the tithe is about to happen. They're going to get some more. If Belladonna got even a taste, maybe she would decomatose eyes and be okay. And this is where we learn about the whole thing where the thieves get long life from the tithe and the assassins get power— and that confuses me because I don't think we ever really see the assassins using any specifically fancy powers other than the power to dress very brightly. Maybe it's the power to be sneaky while dressed that brightly. You'd think that with with Kendra being an external and with the, you know, the amount they pay in the tithe that they could at least, you know, tithe up some pants for Belladonna, but... It shall not be so. Now, Rogue takes the naked burden from Gambit as they head uh, down very quickly from the high-level room in the mansion. And I really appreciate this. I appreciate that even though Rogue is really uncomfortable about Gambit's wife still being alive in this case and existing at all in the case of Brood Trouble and the Big Easy, like, she doesn't really blame Belladonna for that. Right. Um, Rogue's relationship to Belladonna is something that's going to get explored a whole, whole lot a little later in the series. And it's really interesting. A Rogue manages and has managed, managed also in Brood Trouble and the Big Easy, I think, to kind of separate how she relates to Belladonna as a person with how she relates to Belladonna and Gambit's history. Yes. Way to be emotionally mature, Rogue. Good job. With a fwakoom! Gambit, Rogue, and the still-naked Belladonna, because apparently there has not been time to get her dressed in any way, interrupt the tithing ceremony that the Thieves' Guild are having with the Tithe Collector, just as the Tithe Collector is giving out the first of three vials of Elixir of Life to the Thieves. And uh, Gambit bursts in with a dramatic... Father, we will have words! 
Sorry, buddy. It sounds a lot cooler when Thor says it. I mean, let's be real. Most things sound cooler when Thor says them. But what if Thor said them in Gambit's accent? I don't know if that's really easy or really hard to imagine. My brain is just sort of going in circles because uh, this is confusing. There's too, there are too many different kinds of cool in this scenario. Now, Jean-Luc, uh, this is Jean-Luc Lupo, the leader of the Thieves Guild, Gambit's adopted father, refuses to give the elixir to an outsider, even if it's his daughter-in-law. And anyway, they'd need all three vials. Um, but, and, and the Thieves only have one because Julian, um, of the Assassin's Guild, a traitor thief named Pierre and some assassins have attacked the Tithe Collector on the street and stolen vial number two. Vial number three, however, is overseas. It is in Paris with their benefactress, Kandra. And the tithe collector says, hey, you're not allowed to rent here anymore. I mean, he says the pact is totally over because obviously stabbing him a whole lot in the self is a violation of the rules. Also, based on how he is portrayed in this issue, I have come to the conclusion that he is probably reclusive billionaire Lamont Cranston. He does kind of have that dramatic nose, doesn't he? He's got that dramatic nose and he's specifically got that specific profile angle and lighting. I actually really like the visual design of the Tithe Collector. Like, he always looks really serious and imposing, even though he spends most of the series just getting his ass kicked repeatedly like Worf on The Next Generation to show how badass everybody else is. He's simultaneously imposing and nondescript, which is a very specific kind of noir archetype that I really love. You know, in a weird way, I'm actually reminded of the cigarette smoking man from The X-Files, like the way you just described him. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, they're not visually the same, but they both have that same sort of feel. He'd be a very, very good fit in a movie like Intacto. I don't know what that movie is. Oh man, it's really good. Oh, well, onto the list it goes. Yeah. Anyway, Gambit and Rogue head, with naked Belladonna, to a huge fancy house that Gambit bought with all of his Thieven money, sorry, Thieven money, to retire at. And they set Belladonna down, and over her nude, bedraped body, talk. Gambit reveals a little bit of his backstory. Yeah, so as it turns out, Gambit was adopted by Jean-Luc when young Gambit tried to pick Jean-Luc's pocket. Wolvie, they're adopting a baby! This is specifically the way that fictional thieves get kids, uh, uh, per Storm and Parker from Leverage and I'm sure quite a few others. Right. Uh, This also, I'd like to point out, does leave the door open for what was for a long time a possibility, which was Gambit being the third Summers brother. Or at least a joint clone of Cyclops and Sinister. (laughs) Potato, potato. Anyway, now that Jean-Luc has disowned Gambit for basically fucking everything up, and Gambit's brother Henri is dead, and Belladonna is both comatose and nude, Gambit has lost a whole lot. He's still got his house, though, and he's still got Rogue, who offers to watch Belladonna and keep her keep her guarded while he goes off and does whatever the hell he needs to do. Again, Rogue is totally a good bro to Belladonna, and I really appreciate that. Even if she does say something about, it's not for her, it's for you, Gambit. Honestly, I think it's kind of for Belladonna, too. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think Belladonna probably deserves it more than Gambit. Although, again, Gambit does a pretty good job being... A kind of dark, vaguely picaresque, roguish, romantic hero in this. This is a series where, honestly, I feel like if you knocked out the accents, this would be a pretty good, pretty classic, like, intense, dynastic drama. That said, don't you dare knock out the accents. I love them dearly. They're terrible and inaccurate, and they make me happy. Well, luckily for you, they're not going anywhere. Unlike Gambit, who's off to Paris, but first he goes and talks to Belladonna's dad. Marius, who is currently sitting amid a bunch of dead assassins because his disappointing, beclawed son, Julian, has showed up and decided he's just going to basically kill whoever. Uh, Julian's not doing so hot these days in terms of the uh, decision-making. On the general scale of shitty kids from prominent families, where would you put Julian Boudreau relative to, say, Alexander Von Doom? 
I mean, Alexander Von Doom does have a worse hat, but Julian Boudreau is more evil and murdery. I guess it kind of depends on what scale we're examining them on. I mean, in terms of super goofy and enjoyable, Alexander Von Doom wins. In terms of actually being kind of scary, Julian wins. I mean, they're both pretty awful. Julian does have a significant tactical advantage over the rest of the assassins, though, namely that he wears dark colors. I mean, it's such a strange idea. It, it's so crazy, it just might work. Anyway, that brings us to Gambit number three, the Benefactress, and brings Gambit himself to Paris to a highly exclusive club. That is Petit Chou. Shouldn't it be the masculine adjective? I'm not really sure. It's been a while since high school French. Since high school, in fact. But I'm very pleased by the fact that if you look at those words literally, it means little cabbage. Uh, idiomatically can also mean little cream puff. Either way, this is the name of one of the most exclusive clubs in Paris, and oh boy has Gambit dressed up for it. He is wearing a black quilted jacket made of either leather or vinyl. It looks more like vinyl based on the way it hangs. A quilted jacket? Do you think it's as comfy as Havoc's quilted jacket? Nothing is as comfy as Havoc's quilted jacket. Gambit is also wearing a very tight, low-cut, pale brown tank top, skin-tight, ripped-up, white-high, V-waisted jeans with a black belt, brown cowboy boots, and some kind of a medallion around his neck. Choices have been made. The thing is, though, this is actually so much less peacocky than his usual default costume. Oh, my favorite thing is that at, at one point he's going to change out of this outfit to do some Teven and specifically put on all of his, like, metal and neon. I mean, I don't know how you would expect to be stealthy without a healthy quantity of fuchsia. Well, Gambit's not even trying to be stealthy here. He is trying to see Kandra, um, and his requests earn him not an audience with her, but an armed escort to the garage, which then appears to be about to kill him. Uh, Gambit, for his part, tricks them into giving him a lighter for a quote-unquote last cigarette, charges it, and uses it to blow up his attackers, whom he gets past. And, you know, so there's there's that really distinctive Jim Lee picture of Gambit jumping into a fight and doing, like, almost splits. And that gets used again and again in the series, and again and again for Gambit, and I just really feel like jumping into fights crotch first is not a good idea. Gambit do everything Cajun style. I'm pretty sure that is nobody's style. It Gambit style. It is a bad style. Also, given Gambit's general proclivities, I feel like he would have, you know, he would prioritize protecting his personal bits a little bit more than he does. Gambit coat little Gambit with the elixir of life. Well, that went somewhere. Anyway, this is the point where, in the name of subtlety, Gambit changes into his neon superhero outfit because it's the fucking 90s. The tithe collector shows up, says Kandra will see Gambit now, and knocks him out because no one observes normal guest and, and host etiquette in this place. It's ridiculous. When Gambit awakes, we the readers find out that, hey, he and Kandra have totally met before. They used to have a thing way back in the day. Oh, they used to have several things way back in several days, and a number of those things involve incredibly complex time travel retcons, which have not been written into continuity as of the time of this series, so we're going to overlook them for the moment. What we do know, what is concrete, is that Gambit did some work for Kandra, he didn't know her name, and they clearly hooked up or at least considered it. What we also know is that Kandra's outfit is... Certainly a thing. I mean, it's almost a little like if the Goblin Queen's outfit were less ripped up and red instead of black, but it's got the same gigantic cape, long sleeves, and tiny panties that the Goblin Queen had, and I guess when you're rich and immortal, you can just sort of do whatever. So, between this and Warren Kenneth Worthington III, I've come to the conclusion that rich people wear as little clothing as possible. I think you may be right. So, day drinking and being almost naked all the time. I mean, I have my issues with capitalism, quite a few in fact, but that part sounds pretty nice. Right? Yeah. Anyway, we learn from the uh, mostly naked in her lower half, Kandra, that she was the one that founded both the Thieves and the Assassin's Guild, partially because they were useful and partially because when you have a long life, you get bored, and so you figure you can just sort of fuck with the world and see what happens. 
Wow. So yeah, she she literally just sort of did this to see how it would play out, but also she'd have a bunch of thieves and assassins at her call. Now, however, Kendra wants to reorganize, partially because she wants to make things more useful to her in the present, and partly because she's bored and wants to shake things up a little bit. So to complicate matters, she has dragged Jean-Luc here, and I guess dressed him as Robin Hood? Wait, no, that's actually just how he dresses all the time. Okay. Well, she wants Gambit to kill his Robin Hood-looking adoptive dad to get the elixir of life or just for the hell of it. I don't know. Gambit says, no, no, I will not do this thing. But then assassins show up and everyone fights. Gambit and Jean-Luc both manage to get out alive, and Gambit manages to sneak the elixir off of Kandra's person because Kandra, being I don't even know, has decided that the safest place to put it is between her breasts, and while Gambit sexily kisses her as he leaves, he, I guess, fishes it out all subtle-like. Okay, having been intimately involved with a number of persons with substantial breasts who used those breasts for storage. I feel like the fact that he was able to do that that quickly, surely, and subtly is pretty significant testament to Gambit's skill as a thief. You know, that's a very valid point. This is sort of like the center of the Venn diagram in terms of Gambit's interests and skills. Yeah, yeah. No, I would say that this this was really, this is this is really the signature Gambit job. That said, I do want to point out that in one of the last issues of New Mutants, Cannonball managed to pull this trick on Dragonus when Cannonball was tied up and Dragonus kissed him. And I'm just saying, Remy, you got served by, like, a teenage boy from Kentucky. That was way creepier and less stylish, though. Still, credit to Cannonball because Cannonball is great and I love him. Meanwhile, back in the Big Easy, Rogue is having a little bit of an ethical dilemma— She's there, she's alone with Belladonna. Belladonna's got all of these memories of kissing Gambit, which is something Rogue can't do, and all that history. Rogue could just slide her glove off and touch her for just a second, and she gets as far as getting her glove off before deciding that no, that is absolutely not an okay line to cross. However, the decision is immediately taken out of Rogue's hands by Belladonna, who grabs Rogue by her gloveless hand, and Rogue gets all of Belladonna's memories of Gambit. This will certainly not be awkward later. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Belladonna is comatose, and yet the one time she has any sort of movement, it is specifically to grab the hand that is near her but hadn't actually touched her yet? Okay, this doesn't make any sense. This is just the plot completely going beyond logic just so it can continue itself. And I'm happy to accept that New Orleans in the Marvel Universe has a bunch of, like, buried tunnels where everyone lives. I'm happy to accept stealthy thieves and assassins who don't dress like they should be able to be stealthy. But this... What you need to understand, Miles, is that there are two kinds of comas. There are medical comas, which are have, have significant medical cause, and there are narrative comas. And Belladonna's in a narrative coma, which allows for specific and plot-relevant reactions at appropriate moments. Hmm, okay, okay. Also, maybe by virtue of still being freaking naked and just draped under some crumpled sheets again, uh, that, you know, makes her lighter and lets her rise toward alertness and awakeness and uh, randomly grabbing Rogue. Maybe she's just cold and reaching for a blanket. Oh, that could be it. Or, you know, Rogue's, like, probably pretty hot and sweaty in that full-body costume that she wears all the time, so maybe Belladonna's just trying to, like, get in on some of that body heat. Yeah, she's just going for the nearest source of body heat, like a reptile. Okay, there we go. Belladonna is a naked, partially comatose reptile. So this isn't technically related to any of this, but I realized last night that while the rhymes don't work out, you can sing Bread and Lizards to the tune of Bread and Roses. I... I can confidently state that I've never thought of that before. Yeah, well, now you know. Well, that brings us to Gambit number four, Thief of Time. You remember that novel, The Thief of Always, that was kind of Clive Barker doing early Ray Bradbury? Oh, yeah, that had the uh, Holiday House, right? I think they adapted that into a comic a while back. Never read it. I think so, yeah, and likewise. Well, anyway, uh, in Gambit number four, rather than in Clive Barker's The Thief of Always, Gambit is crouching dramatically atop the spires of the Church of Lost Thieves. That's what it's called, the Church of Lost Thieves. This is like some The Crow-level overwroughtness, and I am fucking on board. 
Okay, Miles, having recently seen The Crow, I can tell you for a fact that nothing is as overwrought as The Crow. Actually, that's not true. The Crow is actually slightly less overwrought than I remembered it having been, but it's still pretty overwrought. Yeah. Uh, does it hold up? It does, actually. It holds up really astonishingly well. Mostly, Brandon Lee's performance in it is just phenomenal. And I I remembered watching it as a teenager and knowing that he died making it and having my perception of how brilliant and romantic it was totally, totally shaded by that. But as a cynical adult, I was actually still really, really impressed. And it's, it's, yeah. And again, it's interesting watching it as an adult with more knowledge of how story works and how movies work too, because you can see the places that are shot around or that are, are, are working around the stuff that they couldn't shoot because of his death. Um, but yeah, it's actually a remarkably solid movie, all things considered. Oh man. Well, I should give that a rewatch at some point. I don't think I've seen that since the 1990s. Yeah, it's actually streaming, I think, on Netflix, which is how we ended up stumbling across it and rewatching it. Nice. Well, anyway, not on Netflix, but in The Church of Lost Thieves, Julian is waiting inside with the one vial of the elixir of life that he already has. He's waiting for the thief Pierre to come in, having presumably stolen the thief's own vial. But Gambit apparently already intercepted Pierre, having stolen the vial that Pierre was taking from the Thieves' Guild. Gambit also managed to use his sexy thiefy skills to grab the vial that Kandra had from between Kandra's breasts. Now Gambit has two vials and quickly plucks the third from Julian's hands. Good job. But Julian is convinced that he needs the elixir, and he pulls off his mask to reveal the horror that he has become, which is, I guess, kind of old. Yeah, he just sort of looks like an old guy. I mean, I really like Lee Week's art in this series, but I think this is an area where it falls down. Part of the plot is that Julian has been driven to this murderous madness because the elixir of life has been rotting him away, has been sort of zombifying him, which it does occasionally to some people, apparently. And I feel like you really need a visual to sell that horror. You can't just say that it's the case when you're in a visual medium like a comic book. Yeah, I mean, he literally just looks kind of old, and everyone's horrified, and it's really not that horrifying, so um, it, it, it just doesn't really seem like a big deal. And, and uh, Gambit brings Julian to, to Jean-Luc um, and demands to know whether his father knew that this was an effect of the elixir, and Jean-Luc says, yeah, it's a side effect, but it's a very rare side effect, and everyone knows there's a risk before, you know, people drink it. And Gambit is horrified, which seems weird to me, considering the amount of killing that goes on around this stuff that he seems to have no problem with. Yeah, and Jean-Luc is like, yeah, it's totally the biggest sin of the Thieves' Guild, but- It is definitely it, not. It's definitely not, but it also doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I mean, everybody is given the knowledge that this might be a possibility. Everybody consents before they get involved. Like- I kind of feel like if you could get long life in 99% of a population and then 1% just knew that maybe it might not go so well for them, uh, that's that's a pretty good deal, actually. Maybe? Am I looking at this wrong? I mean, as someone with really, really severe food allergies, if I eat something that says processed on shared lines, I know what I'm getting into. Yeah. So there you go. Well, suddenly, the Tithe Collector, along with both guilds united behind him, show up. Kandra has told both guilds that if they kill Gambit, she's going to look much more favorably upon them. Both guilds are going to get the long life and the power. They have a whole lot of incentive to take out Remy LeBeau. Also a pony. They get a pony. Gambit looks upon this with his usual you know, wry humor. It looks like I'd be helping make some kind of peace between the guilds at last, eh? But he won't give the elixir back to the thieves. Um, he is gonna use it to save Valadonna. So instead, Gambit uses his mutant power to charge up this giant saint statue and throws that statue into the courtyard to blow everybody up, and I love this narration. Under different circumstances, it would be viewed as a miracle by some. But the thieves and assassins recognized the glow surrounding the statue as something other than divine intervention. This series. Like, it just goes beyond whether it's a good or a bad series. That doesn't matter. That's utterly irrelevant. If you're looking to figure out the quality of this series, I feel like you're missing the point. The point is that this series is awesome. So, I've been reading this alternating with rewatching Cowboy Bebop. 
And if you need an imaginary soundtrack for this series, I recognize that it's not very New Orleans-y, but it works. I can totally see that. Because that's the thing. It's not that exactly that it's style over substance so much as that it's about style. Style is the substance, and I think that's totally acceptable. The style is the substance, and the substance wears neon and has a heavy phonetic accent. Hells yes. So, Gambit fights his way through everybody to get back to his giant house and back to naked Belladonna. Who is, in fact, still naked. She is. But by the time Gambit gets there, everybody else has already beat him to the house. The Tithe Collector is there, and he's captured both Belladonna and Rogue. He's going to kill them right in front of Gambit because Kandra has ordered the Tithe Collector to make Gambit suffer for what he did. This is the worst party. It's really the worst party. Gambit uses his mutant power to charge up the Tithe Collector's dramatic trench coat. Which is legitimately extremely awesome. And then defenestrates the Tithe Collector, who midair explodes. Because again, this is that kind of series. Well, he did charge him up. I know, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. I'm just saying I'm glad it worked out that way. Okay then. Julian chooses this moment to attack, and of course in the process, because Julian is really inept, he shatters the vials of the elixir. You know, the elixir that was going to save Julian's own sister, who is ostensibly the whole reason that Julian's so mad at Gambit. And also the elixir that Julian himself was after. Exactly. Double ironic. It's like rain on your wedding day. That's not ironic. No, it's really just inconvenient. <laughs> Kandra also shows up because apparently this is the big reunion scene for, like, everybody in the series. I enjoy that she just appears out of nowhere. Like, you'd think that her bright red, partial nudity, partial cape and panty combination would be loud enough to give her away. Um, but no. No, because this is, this is her territory. And again, presumably she's the one who taught the first thieves and assassins that real loud colors were actually camouflage. So over generations, the ability to see anyone wearing those colors has slowly been bred out of them. Suddenly everything makes so much sense. You figured it out, Che? No, no, not really. Well, Kandra once again makes an offer to the thieves and assassins, saying, no, seriously, kill Gambit, and I'm going to give you guys, like, everything you want— but they're kind of over it. So many thieves and so many assassins have died over all of the bullshit that Kandra has pulled. And Jean-Luc and Marius say, lady, no way. We're done. This whole tithe arrangement is over. Yeah, like, long life and powers are cool, but we'd rather just be stupidly rich. You know, fair enough, I guess. So Kandra bamfs away, and with that, the old ways are gone. And even though maybe that's a good thing, Jean-Luc tells Gambit, hey, I'm sorry, son, but you really need to not come back. You are exiled from New Orleans for your role in the destruction of so much tradition. Again. Again. But before Gambit leaves, he squeezes the spilled elixir and blood from Belladonna's drapey bedsheets into Belladonna's mouth. It is really lucky that it happened to spill and mix at just the right precise proportions. Sure is. And Belladonna nakedly awakens with a naked memory because she has narrative amnesia. She does not remember who she is or her past. She doesn't have narrative amnesia. She has rogue-induced amnesia. Rogue has her memories, basically. You know, I didn't interpret it that way. I just figured that it was because she only got a tiny little bit of the elixir, and it hadn't been mixed correctly, and there was, like, blood from the battle mixed in. I could see Rogue being partially responsible, but I never got that impression. No, I thought it was 100% that Rogue had her memories. Well, when we get to the Rogue miniseries that's a sequel to this, uh, maybe it'll address that. I haven't read that in many years, so I don't remember. Meanwhile, though, Belladonna has no idea who or where she is, and Gambit starts to answer, then takes a sharp left. It's me, Petit. Remy. You remember me. I'm your... your... I'm... I'm a friend. Just a friend who's been worrying about you, Petit. This man here, he be your daddy. He'll take good care of you. You go with him. You can learn to be an assassin again. Do some killing. It'll do you good. This is genuinely sad. I mean, this sacrifice that Gambit makes and not saying, oh, by the way, I'm your husband, like, let's get to know each other because we had a thing back in the day. 
I think it is the right thing to do because the fact is the relationship Gambit and Belladonna were in kind of didn't do either of them any favors. Well, he'd also have to be like, I'm your husband. Let's get to know each other again, but somewhere else because we're now exiled from any contact with anyone else who you were close to. That too. So Gambit's real sad, but hey, silver lining, now he can fully, without guilt, focus on his relationship with Rogue. Except that guilt is kind of Rogue's middle name, and especially now and with what happened with Belladonna, and she can't quite bring herself to do it. Gambit still loves Belladonna, Rogue knows that, and Rogue's mind is all swirly and messed up, and so she flies away because that is the way Gambit and Rogue's relationship works. They'll start to get close, something will go wrong. They'll start to get close, something will go wrong. What Rogue needs to understand is that this is not either of their faults. This is a byproduct, in fact, of being characters in a long-running superhero comic. Man, if Gambit and Rogue could meet, like, Marvel editorial, I feel like they would beat the living hell out of them. I'm pretty sure there's been at least one what if or issue where that happened on at least some scale with some some or other superhero team. So everybody's sad. All their traditions are destroyed. Uh, there's still a bunch of neon everywhere. And as much as we got some great opening narration, we get perhaps some even better closing narration. Out of the ashes of the old, a new legend is born on the streets of New Orleans. A legend used by Creole mothers to frighten bad little children. The dark, handsome thief sneaking through the shadows of the night. The thief who tosses lightning from his hands and steals the heart of your girl. The thief searching for the love he can never have. The thief, the traitor to all. So goes the legend of Gambit. Is it good? Is it bad? It is awesome. Yeah, this series is a hell of a lot of fun. Um, and it's it's kind of making me a little bit sad that the Gambit movie is probably infinitely postponed and postponed and postponed and basically functionally dead in the water. You could have a lot of fun with this. I do feel like you'd have to avoid what many of the X-Men movies have done, though. You'd have to just avoid even attempting to be realistic because... The Marvel New Orleans and everything about Gambit and Belladonna and the Thieves and the Assassins, it is nonsense, and you have to lean into that nonsense to make it work. You would also need to do something that, unfortunately, I think very few people who've written these characters have done and actually get a couple cultural consultants. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, uh, Marvel could have stood to have um, done that. I know New Orleans culture and Cajun and Creole heritage and stuff. Uh, Marvel doesn't do the best job with um, any of that. Yeah, and given given the one Origins movie that got made of that uh, proposed uh, sequence of them, I'm not wildly optimistic about that how that would be handled. But um, yeah, the, 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 given given the 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 great legends of uh, Wolverine's howling at the moon and all. Hmm. Well, we don't hang out much with the Thieves Guild or the Assassins Guild, but we do hang out with the J and Miles Explain the X Men Listeners Guild, and they have questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, If Artie and Leech were to ever grow up, how would you envision their adult lives? Fulfilling and joyous. I feel like they'd be roommates and besties for life. I should say that I haven't really read their Fantastic Four run, so uh, maybe this answers that question. I don't know, but we'll tell you what we think. It would be like Juggernaut and Black Tom, but probably with less crime. Probably. And just like Juggernaut and Black Tom... Whether or not Artie and Leech were romantic partners or just platonically dedicated BFFs, that doesn't matter. They're side by side forever, and that's what's relevant. I have no real foundation for this, but I feel fairly strongly that they have a bright future as weird multimedia installation artists. I could see that. Or, you know, maybe they mentor kids in some way, possibly using weird multimedia installation art, uh, and also being super adorable regardless of what age Artie and Leech are. But definitely something involving community and found family. I mean, those are X-Men themes big time, but I feel like Artie and Leech are even more central to those themes, and those themes, themes are even more central to them than most other characters. I'm going to go ahead and say that they also join Taki in what I've decided is his destiny as a hardcore disability um, activist and accessibility hacker. I can absolutely see that, and I would love everything about that. I would also just love to see Taki again, because, goddammit, I miss WizKid. 
Mortal Finlay asks on Tumblr, Several X-Men villains have had stints as members of the team itself. Which villain would you love to see return to the X-Men or have a first attempt at going straight? So this is a hard question because you want a villain who is villainous enough that their face turn is meaningful, but not so far gone that they're irredeemable. So I have an unpopular opinion here. I didn't like Chuck Austin's run overall, but I really did like what Chuck Austin did with Juggernaut's redemption and his joining the X-Men. And Kane Marco, I think, absolutely does fit into that villain, but not like horrifyingly genocidal villain uh, context. I mean, you probably have to ignore a couple of stories, like when he and Black Tom blew up the World Trade Center and probably killed a bunch of people. But still, a character like that, I think, would work. As far as right now... I mean, uh, in fact, she would be really fun. Remember her? I think she actually comes back pretty soon in our coverage. Or maybe Miss Sinister as an ally of convenience to the X-Men in opposing Mr. Sinister, but she might be a little too similar to Dark Beast in terms of the role she would probably occupy. Moses Magnum, I would love to see join the team, but that's really just because I want to see more of Moses Magnum because I think he's great. But if I had to pick one character, I would actually say the Orphan Maker. The young child in giant murdery robot armor that was ordered to kill a whole lot of parents by nanny so that their children could be kidnapped. The thing with the Orphan Maker is he didn't really realize exactly what they were doing. He really bought into nanny's narrative that they were just rescuing these children. And so seeing him a little bit older join the X-Men and have to come to terms with what he did and try to undo some of that harm I think could be fascinating and gloriously tragic. Now, given Gambit's history, I was thinking about Marauders, and that brought me to Scrambler, who kind of seems like a gimme on this one. Oh yeah, Scrambler. Wasn't Scrambler the one with the kick-ass fashion sense? Scrambler is the one who looks like he's an exchange student from Riverdale. And the the city, not the show. He looks like he's from Classic Archie. And um, he's the one who also, like, has a redemption arc later on in the, the Gambit and Deadpool miniseries and is just trying to live an ordinary life and and be a basically good dude. I gotta say, I also enjoy the intensely terrible and ill-conceived alliances that the X-Men occasionally make with Dark Beast. Oh yeah, they're doing that in uh, current continuity, and it's delightful. And I'm troubled by it because I'm pretty sure it's not going to go in a good direction. But that's the great thing about Dark Beast. It always goes in terrible, fascinating directions that are great for the story. How many times has he died at this point? I mean, at least two. Maybe more. It's a lot. More than me. Yeah, still. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's get started hearing from the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you could run from your past, Jay Wilson. Change your name. Join a super team. Get a fresh start in some more comfortable clothes and never look back. But pasts have a way of catching up with you, and yours is about to come barreling through your favorite window in the form of a very disgruntled Chris Monroe. Hope you survive the experience. And now, I feel like this this hardly even bears introduction given the episode we've just come out of. The mic is going to Sexy Gambit. Would be distant Gambit see? Decide street steppers, comatose and fully nude? Well, this simply will not do. Daryl Weir, past Gambit, that shower curtain, that novelty souvenir beach towel, and that ornamental rug. And we draped them over those folks before we carried their naked bodies to the Thieves Guild. But what that, Daryl? You say we maybe should dress them in actual clothes? There simply be no time. And Gambit Tink, maybe you look good in the shower curtain too, mon ami. After all, Nolans ain't no place for the modest. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, or join the Thieves or Assassins Guild, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Now, meanwhile, don't pack up those phonetic accents just yet. Next week, we're jumping ahead to the final part of the New Orleans trilogy. With Rogue's first limited series. (laughs) 